Welcome back to another episode of Whose Crime Is It Anyway? I'm Shell. And I'm Lisa. And we're back with another dose of true crime from the true north. So before we begin, I just want to give a huge thank you to Nicole and Carly for supporting our show and buying us a couple of coffees. Thanks, guys. So, so nice. It really kept me going through the research of that doozy Clifford Olson case. Oh, yeah, that was a big one. It really helps our show because we are self-funded and we're just a little indie podcast and it just makes us so happy to see those coffees come through. So thank you. Thanks. So the case I'm sharing with you today is a big one. It's been on my radar to cover since we started our podcast and it had a crazy development that happened just three years ago. For two high school sweethearts, life was perfect. They were newly graduated and carefree in the process of finding out what it was that they wanted to do with the rest of their lives. After six months of dating, the couple went on an overnight trip to Seattle, which took a series of sinister turns. But after three decades of wondering what happened to this couple on the open road, a break comes in this cold case, and the killer is revealed. This is the case of Jay Cook and Tanya Van Kylenberg. Take it away, girl. Tanya Van Kylenberg and Jay Roland Cook are high school sweethearts. The couple lived in Saanich, British Columbia, a city in the greater Victoria area, about a 15-minute drive from downtown. Tanya is 18 years old and incredibly sweet and kind. She played tennis and baseball and absolutely loved her golden retriever, Tessa. She wanted, I know, she wanted to work with animals someday, maybe as a veterinarian. Goldens are just, I love them so much. I know, there are so many photos of Tanya and Tessa, her golden. Yeah, you can just tell she loved animals. Mm -hmm. Jay was 20 years old, 6'4", with broad shoulders, but very tall and gangly. He loved to play his bass guitar and worked on a fishing boat. He was also a very kind boy. He was quoted as having no rough edges. They both loved music, loved to sail and be out on the boat, and they weren't rushing through life, just taking time to enjoy it. The two of them looked up to one another and were, by all accounts, so happy to be dating. Like, just young love. Young love, totally. Like, not a care in the world. Yeah, just adorable. The two started dating after Tanya graduated from Oak Bay High School in June of 1987. Later on that same year, six months into their relationship, they would go on a short road trip that would change the course of their lives forever. On November 18, 1987, Jay asked Tanya if she wanted to join him on an overnight trip to Seattle. Jay's father had a business and needed some parts picked up over the border, as well as a $750 money order check. He asked Jay if he could complete this one for him. Agreeing, Jay used this quick trip as a way for him and Tanya to get away together, even if it was just for an evening. 
The two packed their bags, and Tanya even brought her camera, which was a Minolta X700 with a 35mm lens, a very nice film camera. And they hopped on the Coho Ferry from Victoria, BC to Port Angeles, Washington. I've taken that ferry. I know, me too. You know why I've taken that ferry is because I went to Forks because we were hardcore Twilight fans. We went to Forks. I remember this oh story. God. And we did a oh my we God. Did Twilight tour. We had fangs in our mouths. Oh, my oh God. yeah, it's a thing. It's a total thing. So the Twilight cringy. fandom. So freaking cringy. Oh, God. The amount of TikToks that make fun of Twilight, I it know. just makes my it's life so great. It's the best. <laughs> so after getting to Port Angeles, the couple then drove southeast on Route 101 to Bremerton. And they were driving Jay's dad's vehicle, a 1977 Ford Club van. They made a quick stop for gas along the way at a spot called Ben's Deli. And then the couple boarded a second ferry from Bremerton to Seattle. The second ferry docked just before midnight, and Jay and Tanya planned to sleep in their van at a parking lot in Sodo, which is an industrial district in Seattle. But the couple never made it to their destination to pick up the parts for Jay's dad. In fact, no one knows what happened in those hours after they got off the ferry in Seattle. The couple completely drop off the radar. Jay and Tanya don't return home on November 19th like their families expect them to, and they never called or made contact. On November 20th, 1987, the couple was reported as missing persons by their parents. Sorry, just to go back, they weren't planning to stay in a hotel. They were planning to just sleep in the van for the one night. Yes, so they had no plans to sleep in a hotel or anything like that. The van had more than enough room, Mm -hmm. so they were just going to sleep in the back of it. Okay, so there would have been like, it would be hard to see like, okay, well, did they check into the hotel? Is there camera footage of them? So it makes it harder to track them. Exactly, because basically they knew where they were going, but they just, they didn't really know exactly where they were going to stay. It was just an overnight trip. It wasn't supposed to be too strenuous right Right, just cash but it wasn't long until a body was found and this missing persons case turned into a homicide investigation on november 24th just four days after being reported missing tanya's body is found by a passerby in a ditch under some wet leaves her body was located just off Parson Creek Road in the small town of Alger, Washington, which is about 20 kilometers south of Bellingham. Oh, so they had gone north. I mean, maybe they maybe they didn't, but like she was found north of Seattle, like not not even close. She was. That's a few hours away, like maybe an hour and a half hour, an hour and a half, maybe. Interesting. OK, so. Tanya's body was found partially nude, naked from the waist down, and her bra was pulled up, but her shirt and jacket were still on. She was bound with plastic ties. Her cause of death was a gunshot wound to the back of her head with a 380 caliber gun, and it was later determined that she was sexually assaulted and raped. Ugh. Okay, so was Jay found nearby at all? Like, where is he? 
So at this point, Jay was nowhere to be found. There was no other body near Tanya's at all. And at this point, police were beginning to suspect that Jay might be the one who could have done this to Tanya. Don't throw Jay under the bus. I know. And that's not even like my first thought is that it would be him. They were in love. They were so in love. And his family at the time was insistent that Jay could and would never do something like this. Right. At all. A day later, on November 25th, Tanya's wallet and keys, as well as a half-empty box of 380 caliber ammo and plastic gloves, were found under the porch of a bar near a Greyhound bus station in Bellingham. Hmm. So they found this, they found Tanya's belongings, and then the van the couple was traveling in was found the same day just a few blocks away from all of her stuff. Okay, so... They landed in Seattle from the ferry. Mm-hmm. Her body was found 20 kilometers from Bellingham. Yeah. And then her wallet was found even closer to the border. Exactly. Sounds like someone's heading for the border to me. Right? And also, at this point, I'm like, was someone else driving the van? Yeah. And took off with her and dumped her body somewhere yeah. far away from where they actually were? Right. That's, that's what I would think. And just like chucked the keys and whatever mm-hmm. close to a bus station. Like maybe they were hopping on a bus after. Yeah. yeah. Dumped the yeah. car, hopped on a bus. For sure. So inside the vehicle, police find plastic ties, the exact same kind used to tie up Tanya, and more plastic gloves. The money order that Jay was picking up for his dad was there and it was untouched and in the vehicle. What? I know. There's money right there, totally untouched. And there is a blood-stained blanket and pants with traces of semen. Oh, what? Okay. There's a lot here in this car. There's a lot. Why? Yeah, there's so much there. Why would somebody ditch her wallet but then leave their pants with their DNA on it? Right. So we'll get to more about DNA, but remember that this is 1987. Right. A lot of the forensic knowledge at this point is fingerprints. Mm -hmm. And remember, there's gloves. So no fingerprints were left at the scene. Also inside the vehicle, they did find receipts from all of the places that Jay and Tanya had visited. So this allowed the police to piece together that whole kind of how and why the The couple traveled. The timeline. Exactly. Of their day before. But there was something significant missing from the van. Tanya's camera, that Minolta X700, was nowhere to be found. Also, a backpack and jacket belonging to the couple, I'm not sure who it was, but that was also missing. Interesting. Then, the next day. On November 26th, another body was found. The body of Jay Cook. He was discovered by a pheasant hunter's dog. He was situated under a bridge along the Snoqualmie River, almost a hundred kilometers away from where Tanya was found. Was he closer to Seattle then? The Snoqualmie River is actually closer to Seattle. It's about a 40 minute drive from Seattle. Okay. And it's actually more like how Bellingham is north of Mm -hmm. Seattle. Mm -hmm. Snoqualmie is east. Okay. 
did they see her what did they find her camera and her other things near his body but they still don't know where her camera is no so no camera no belongings there was just jay and his body so unlike tanya jay was not shot he was beaten with rocks and then strangled with twine and those white zip ties were present again at the scene that sounds like a, a really awful way no, it was it was awful. And not only that, they did find tissue and cigarettes stuffed into his mouth, almost like the killer was trying to silence him. Right. God, that sounds awful. Whose body was dumped first? So from what I read from different sources, the police at this point are determining that Jay was murdered first and that the killer's goal was to attack Tanya. So I actually have a clip from CBC's Fifth Estate with lead detective on the case, Jim Scharf, describing what he believes happened that evening. And strangled him and killed him as quietly as he could so that he could come back and tell Tanya, hey, I let Jay go. If you do everything I tell you to do, I won't hurt you and I'll let you go. Oh, God. So that's what they believe at this point, is that Tanya was really the... It was the goal of the killers was to attack Tanya, Mm -hmm. and Jay was in the way. Mm -hmm. And so they basically made him disappear, and Tanya was really, like, the primary goal for the killer. Hmm. I I mean, it's just a horrible end to two young, vibrant, happy lives. For sure. It's just... It's so awful. And so going back to DNA, like we were talking about before, at this point in time, it is super new. So just one year earlier in 1986 is when DNA was first used in an investigation. But the police at the time did take evidence from the gloves that were left behind and also the semen that was found. They also ran it through the database, but in this time period, there were zero matches. Right. But Washington State Patrol stored the evidence properly to wait for future advancements in DNA profiling. That's so nice. So, (laughs) I mean, we don't hear this often. I know. But in this case, the police did their due diligence and they saved it. Awesome. So after weeks and weeks of trying to find out what happened to this couple and who brutally murdered them, the trail went cold. The theory was that Jay and Tanya met with foul play on the second ferry to Seattle, picking up a hitchhiker or helping someone in need. The police believed that the killer left the plastic surgical gloves at each crime scene to taunt investigators, basically saying like, you can't find me because I left no fingerprints. What an idiot. I mean, at this time, I guess you're not really thinking, oh, they can find me through right. my semen that I left, you know? Yes. It's just fingerprints everywhere. Police also believed that the killer could have been familiar with the prison system and been in jail recently, but not as recent to have had his DNA taken and put on file. So to help with tips in the case, police dispersed packs of playing cards to help in 52 different cold cases and they gave them out in those prisons so jay and tanya's names were written on the king of hearts 
playing like a deck of cards yeah so they put names of missing persons or cold cases on these playing cards hoping that when the prison inmates saw the names it would spark something in their mind and then they would come forward with some information oh okay i've never heard of that before it's yeah it was something new i hadn't heard of before either but unfortunately there was no luck So with no witnesses, no DNA matches, and no leads, this horrible murderer had seemingly escaped capture and went on living his life. But we now have a little thing called forensic genealogy. Yes. Yes. It's so good. I love it. So 30 years later, on April 11th, 2018, a composite sketch was released to the public, believed to be the killer of Tanya Van Kylenberg and Jay Cook. This sketch was created using a process called snapshot DNA phenotyping, done by Parabon Nanolabs and genetic expert Cece Moore. They used the DNA found in the semen left on Tanya's body to create an image, and then the image was age-progressed to 2018. Wow. That's crazy. You know, it's something. I think for the families at the time, you know, mm-hmm. this is a this is decades mm-hmm. and decades later. Although I think they were very cautious at the time, they still had hope. Exactly. And were happy that this case was still being pursued by yeah. law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And although police received over a hundred new tips based on this sketch, none of them had any connection to the case of Tanya and Jay. Damn it. But, Uh, I'm not done there. But, at the exact same time as this composite sketch is being made, Cece Moore and her team at Parabon also created a genealogy report and ran it against GEDmatch, which is the same way that the Golden State Killer was identified. It was then that a distant relative, a second cousin, was identified. Chelsea Rustad. She helped Cece Moore and her team fill in the gaps of her family tree. And guess what? What? Police had their first real person of interest. Oh my god. And his name is William Earl Talbot II. Here is Cece Moore on the CBC's Fifth Estate describing how she came to find William Talbot's name. I found her birth date, so I put that in here, and then I said she shared 3.35% of her DNA with our unknown suspect. Now I have to identify her parents. Who are her grandparents? Well, I recognized Talbot immediately from the other Matches family tree. So right away, I knew, aha, this marriage combines the two different families that I'm researching. So then we follow that forward. We say, okay, Patricia Peters married a Talbot and they had four kids. And we've got one male. I realize I'm looking at the name of most likely the murderer and I'm the only person in the world who knows it except that person. Yes, I fucking love that. It's so crazy to me. It's crazy. And the fact that it was just they only had the one son just narrowed it down so quickly. So quickly. Only one male in that family. And there was there was another match um, 
that wasn't as close as the second cousin, but mm-hmm. that's the other match she's talking about, that she knew that that Talbot name also came from the tree of the other match, so that's how she could piece it together. Okay. Holy crap. But if she hadn't found Chelsea, the second cousin, she wouldn't have been able to fill in that family tree as fully as she did. Like, she says in the documentary that finding a second cousin in one of these forensic genealogy tests is like being struck with lightning. It's like the jackpot. Yeah, that's how rare it is. Holy shit. It's wild. Oh my god. Okay, okay. So, I'll tell you a little bit about William Talbot. So, in 2018, Talbot was 55 years old, and he was a truck driver. He was a blue-collar guy who grew up near Woodenville, Washington, which is very close to where Jay's body was found. So, Talbot liked to go bowling in his spare time. And guess what else he had a passion for? Photography! Fucking photography. Oh my god. My mind like exploded at this point. They say in the court records that he has a passion for cameras and photography. Of course. Which makes a whole lot of fucking sense why Tanya's camera was never found. Exactly. But there were certain things that weren't stolen from the van. Right. Right? Like he didn't steal the money but decided to take the camera. I know. So police staked out his whereabouts and they put Talbot under surveillance. And he pulled over one time as they're surveilling him in his truck. When he went to throw out a paper cup, the officers acted quickly. Yes. They grabbed the cup and they tested the DNA on it against the DNA of Tanya and Jay's killer. And guess what? It was a fucking match. It's a perfect fucking match. <gasps> oh my god. Oh my god, that is so awesome. I know. Like wow. 30 years. Wow. 30 years they've been waiting for this. That blows my mind. I know. Ugh. So on May 18th, 2018, Talbot was arrested for the murder of Tanya von Kylenberg. A month later, he was also charged for the murder of Jay Cook. Talbot was just 24 years old at the time of the killings, a few years older than Jay and Tanya. We still don't know exactly what happened between the ferry ride and their deaths, but we do know that at the time, in the 80s, Talbot's history includes breaking his sister's arm during a fight and having a very estranged and tense relationship with his parents. In a police recording with Talbot's sisters, Melina and Ina, they talk about his type of violence. And I'm going to play it for you now. Bill had a lot of anger issues and he kicked me a few times with boots on and I ended up calling the police. He's been estranged from the family for nearly 20 years. He beat me up, uh, broke my tailbone, I had to go to the hospital. Just sounds like a fucking winner, eh? My God. Right? So I he know, had like, like zero relationship with his family for 20 years. No, he like, was completely separate from them at that point. 
Talbot was also reported by friends to have a dual personality when he drank. He was convicted of a misdemeanor assault two years before the killings and was required to seek anger management counseling. Hmm. At trial, Talbot's roommate at the time, when he was 24, testified that Talbot had actually taken him along a riverbank to take photos remember his passion for photography, and that was the exact same river with the bridge where Jay's body was found. So is he saying that he took him there when the body was there or like after? Like he's kind of going back to the scene of the crime because he's like wanting to take pictures of the area just as like a, you know, trophy for himself? I mean, I don't know at what time this actually took place. Right. But it was a place that he had been before. It was the same place, and he obviously knew of it. Mm-hmm. So he'd explored, like Talbot had explored that area before, so he knew it would be a good dumping ground right. for a body. Right. And maybe he went back there. Who knows? Like, mm-hmm. that's so, oh, it's like chilling I to know. think about. God. Do we know why? Like, is there any, like, explanation? That is the tough part in this case, is that we don't know why. Talbot pleads not guilty at trial, and his only words to the court were, quote, no, I didn't do it. That is all he said. Okay, buddy, why is your semen at the crime scene? Oh, 100%. you. It's pretty much way beyond a reasonable doubt that this guy committed the crime, but we don't know why, and we may, we probably will never know exactly the reason. I mean, as long as he's doing his time and he's you know locked up and behind bars like fine i guess we don't have to know why but still it's those poor kids i know i just oh they must have been so scared i I know it's just it's awful it's unthinkable it's unthinkable and also you that one of them was probably watching the other being hurt you know like just trying to picture being in this situation where you you feel helpless and you can't help your partner and oh my god that would just be so awful I know. The only thing that maybe discounts that Tanya knew that Jay was being murdered by Talbot at the time is that Talbot didn't kill him in the same way that he killed Tanya. He didn't use a gunshot. He strangled him so it would be silent. And he also stuffed something in his mouth so that he couldn't scream. Mm -hmm. So I do think that the police may be right with the theory that you know, he took Jay away or told Tanya that, you know, he let Jay go. And if Tanya just comes with him and stays quiet, she'll be safe as well. And she can also go. Mm-hmm. So she, you know? she didn't see him get killed. Yeah, because otherwise, I mean, she could have fled or, you know, she might have been confused as to what was going on at the time. I don't know. I mean, this is all speculation. We just mm-hmm. don't know what happened during those hours. Holy cow. But Talbot's DNA was a match to the semen found on Tanya's body and also a match to DNA that was found on Jay's zip ties as well. So after a two-week trial and two days of deliberations, Talbot was convicted of two counts of aggravated murder in June of 2019. He was given two life sentences. Awesome. Goodbye. See you later, buddy. Jay's mother, Lee, still believes that both Jay and Tanya met Talbot on the ferry or while driving, and they offered him a ride. 
because they were good, kind-hearted people. Lee says about Talbot, quote, It seems to me the only remarkable thing he ever did was to take, and what he took was the lives of two very young people. The whole family is still around, like both of their parents, their siblings, you know, their their brothers and sisters-in-law. Like it watching the Fifth Estate documentary about this case really it was really hard to watch because the family has been let down for so many years. Mm-hmm. There have been, you know, tips that come in and false hope, but you know, for them to actually get a conviction three decades later and to have some justice, you know, at least they can now go on with their lives and move on a little bit. They can get some closure. Yeah. They can get some closure and they've all dealt with the grief in very different ways. And I I just like love to see like the whole family came together. Even they embraced Chelsea, who was Talbot's second cousin, and talked with her and, you know, she was so nervous to meet them but wanted to like pay her respects and mm-hmm. and be there for the family because literally without her they might not have had this conviction i know it's, it's crazy science is crazy man it science is crazy rules yeah this is one of the most prolific cases where forensic genealogy has been used to solve a decades old cold case and put a killer behind bars It is more widely used in the States, and in Canada, there is yet to be a case tried with forensic genealogy, because this was tried in the the States. But in Vancouver, we know that they are attempting to use this technology, specifically in a cold case that we covered before, the babes in the woods. Yes. We've been following this. I know. I am so stoked for, and and when we have an update, we will give that to you. It's coming. We're getting closer. Jay and Tanya's families hope that other cases can be solved using the same techniques and that technology will continue to advance so more people can receive the justice that they so deserve. And with that, we are no longer wondering, whose crime is it anyway? Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Whose Crime Is It Anyway? We will be back in two weeks with our next case. Until then, follow us on Instagram at Whose Crime Podcast and on Twitter at Whose Crime Pod. And if you'd like to support our show, you can find us at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Whose Crime Pod. Bye. Toodles.